You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, bipeds. Hey, I've got a guest for you today who I've had the great privilege of seeing in action, Jay Kim. Jay Kim is the lead pastor of Westgate Church in Silicon Valley. He's also the author of Analog Christian and Analog Church. And actually, I said those backwards. Analog Christian is his most recent release. Analog Church came out a couple of years ago. But listen, the same theme of how do we live Christianly in a digital age as our culture is speeding up and we know that spiritual growth growth is a slow process as our culture is scattering and we have the value of gathering and so on uh, jay wrote two fantastic books for church leaders and for followers of jesus on how to have a relationship with the digital world how to have an analog life and then most recently he contributed to red skies which uh this is obviously a missio alliance podcast and uh, a lot of the Missio crew are contributing to that book. But the reason I'm excited to talk to Jay is I know him. I got to spend some time with him. Jay was very kind to tolerate my jet-lagged ways. I'd just gotten <laughs> back from a almost 40-hour trip to the remote part of Western Australia and um, had dinner with Jay and some of his friends and then spent just a fantastic day with some area pastors that Jay hosted and then also some of his team. And... Um, Jay, before we get to you, let me let me just say, this sounds, I don't know, presumptuous maybe of me, but I'll say it anyway. I now have the bewildering privilege of traveling the world and peeking behind the curtain of church leadership. I never imagined that this would be my life, but this is the world that God's opened up that I'm stepping into. And in a day where church leaders are so suspect and so many well-known church leaders hitting the headlines for all the wrong reasons. I just want to say my predominant testimony is I run into phenomenal church leaders. That's my predominant testimony. People you've never heard of, guys. People who don't make the pages. Their churches aren't big enough. They haven't sold the big books. And I don't say that cynically. I know some large church pastors who are phenomenal. And by large church pastors, I mean the pastor himself or herself may or may not be large, but the congregation indeed is. Anyway, J. Kim is one of those pastors who I've gotten to see up close. Um, as a systems theorist, it doesn't take long for me to see when a culture is generally healthy or when they're generally not healthy. And so getting to know Jay's team as well, seeing these healthy relationships. The other thing I love about Jay that we'll be getting into is he is recently a lead pastor. And some of my favorite people to talk to are fresh lead pastors because it's terrifying being a lead pastor nowadays. So Jay, with that introduction, welcome to the Managing Leadership Anxiety Podcast. I'm really glad you're with us. Oh, thanks so much, Steve. Yeah, you, uh, you're you a hero to me in many ways. So this is an honor to, to be on with you. Oh, great, man. Me too. Um, all right, let's get into the analog books that you wrote because it is fascinating that you uh, live and breathe and pastor in Silicon Valley. And maybe that's one of the reasons that you chose to focus on the analog life. Tell us what brought both of these books to life, first of all. Yeah, like you said, I, I live and serve in Silicon Valley. I've been here basically my whole life. I moved here when I was four. So um, I've been surrounded. My, uh, my mother and I, single mom, only child, we lived with my uncle and my aunt when I was a kid all the way through most of elementary school. And my uncle worked at IBM and he was, um, I don't remember exactly what he did. I think he did hardware stuff. But uh, so we had these old IBM computers in the house all over the place. And I remember as a child having a real fascination with it. I mean, it was just mesmerizing. Yeah. And I don't think that ever went away. And then just by sheer proximity, the gift of living in this beautiful and strange place I call home, I've been surrounded by tech people and now the church that I serve um, is chock full of people who work at Apple and Google and Facebook, you know, Meta, men and women who are making the stuff that are so pervasive and ubiquitous. And I'm trying my best to serve them and shepherd them as their pastor. So I live at this intersection where we have a lot of conversations about their formation into Christ likeness as they create stuff that's unleashed into the world that is seemingly doing all sorts of strange things to people formatively, you know? And so that, that has thrust me uh, into 
um, both an inner dialogue and a public dialogue about how technology is forming us and why that matters. So that's really where, you know, some of the work came from. Yeah, what I really appreciate about your work, Jay, is obviously you are uniquely qualified to speak to us because of your leadership context, but you're not making a case for an Amish existence or a <laughs> Dead Sea, you know, a yeah. kind of existence. You're actually looking at an integrated life, but you do have, I, I would describe it reading your work, you have high suspicion of some of the impulses and momentums of our culture. I wonder if you'd just give us one or two of these momentums that you see pulling us along, and then what's the contrasting gospel call? Yeah. Well, this isn't original to me. A lot of people have said this already, and I think a lot of people know it, but don't um, sort of intrinsically embody how significant this reality is. But digital technologies in particular are not neutral. They are non-neutral technologies. Now, on the one hand, um, we have power over any technology. So if you put a hammer in my hand, the reality is I have power over that hammer. I can use that hammer to build something beautiful that brings good into the world. I can also use that hammer to break someone's car window and steal their things, you know? So the power is in my hands. The tool itself, uh, maybe one might argue, is neutral. The difference with digital technologies is that inherent in its design is um, a desire to lull us into a sort of constant ebb and flow uh, that keeps us scrolling and clicking and liking and sharing because that's the business model. Now, I don't say that as a critique. Um, I say that simply to, to raise awareness. It's non-neutral. It desires your attention and your affection. And if we're not careful, attention and affection leads to allegiance, you know, essentially mm -hmm. in ways that we don't recognize. And I think some of the data is bearing that out that whether we use this word or not, many of us, if not maybe most of us, have pledged our allegiance to these um, digital technologies that are so addictive, you know? And uh, so for me, yeah, I am not arguing for um, becoming a Luddite and living on a farm and churning your own butter. Um, although, you know, if that's what you want to do, it sounds like a beautiful life, but that's hey, not I the argument. I just I just wish to speak to the butter churners who are listening. We we are we are well with you if you want to yes. churn butter, but but I get your point. We're, you're not unplugging the phone, yeah. No, not at all. But I think it's about living with deep awareness of the intrinsic sort of non-neutral um, desires that are built into these technologies, so that we're able to then make sure that the technology doesn't own us, but we own it and are able to leverage it for our own good and for the good of the world and for God's glory, essentially. But that sort of work takes a lot of intention and practice. Um, you know, James K. A. Smith talks about how human beings are liturgical animals. We, and he says, we live leaning forward. You know, we are all moving in a particular direction. We have no choice in that matter. The only choice we have is which direction. And if we do not choose, then at least in the digital age, in so many ways, technologies and social media in particular, they will choose for us. So um, I think that's probably the, the key thing to, to remember. One of the momentums you critique is, I, I guess I would call it either pace or efficiency in contrast to the highly inefficient process of discipleship. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. You know, I love Paul's words in Galatians 5, um, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, as the Spirit does his work in us, you know, and it bears these characteristics, these godly, Christ-like characteristics of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, you know, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And um, we, we, we sort of get really deep into these characteristics, as we should, but we often forget its fruit of the spirit and you can't microwave an orange, you know, but everything in the digital age, especially demands microwave ability, you know, and I think that's a word I just made up, but I think everyone can relate. We want to be able to push a couple of buttons and get results here in Silicon Valley, where I live and serve, you know, it's a very high sort of VC culture, venture capitalism. And uh, there, there are caricatures here about startup, founders and the way they pitch their companies. And, and it's a caricature that's sort of accurate, but every sort of startup pitch to a VC 
um, is couched in spiritual language. It's almost always about how this particular product or technology is going to, um, one of the cliche words is disrupt the industry. It's going to change the world. It's going to change how people fill in the blank forever. You know, that's the sort of language um, that's so, so pervasive, not just here, but I think in culture at large. And if you read between the lines of that, essentially what, what you are pitching is that you have found a two to three step process that will upend everything. And that's quite attractive. You know, it's, it's um, very flashy. It's spectacle. It's like, oh my gosh, this is the next big unicorn. We're going to get to a billion dollar valuation in six months. You know, that's the sort of language we use. And if we're not careful, I think for followers of Jesus, that sort of mentality um, can seep into our spiritual lives where we are looking for the unicorn. You know, the sort of three-step, six-month, I'm going to get to a billion-dollar spirituality, and man, you know, I'm all in. This is, you know, one of the reasons why how-to books are the best-selling books in any, you know, uh, bookstore or on Amazon. It's like we're all looking for those steps. But to me, it's striking that, you know, the scriptures seem abundantly clear the life of formation into Christ likeness is literally going to take a life. You know, it's, it's going to take the entirety of your life and it's about slow and steady. It's not about speed. It's not about efficiency. It's actually grossly inefficient, ineffective. Um, I've got this little, uh, gar you know, I've got this little planter box in my backyard that my mother, who's a great gardener, she helped us set up. And I just remember the day she helped us set it up. My daughter, who was about five at the time, she came out and she saw my, her grandmother setting up the, you know, putting the soil in and all that. And she ran off to play with her little brother and she runs back 10, 15 minutes later. And she's like, she calls grandma Hami, which is short for Haimani in Korean. Mm -hmm. That's grandmother. She says, Hami, where are the tomatoes? It's been 10 minutes, you know, <laughs> and what she doesn't know is that's not how it works. And that's me. So often I am so often, God, where are the tomatoes? Where's the fruit? And, uh, and all the while I am forgetting that beneath the soil of my life in places and in ways that I cannot see if I am faithful, God is doing a slow work. And so, uh, we need, we need to go at that pace. I, I wish I could remember the author where I read this because it's not original with me, but it's profound. He he just wrote, it was some devotional book I was reading, and he said, look, the fallacy of fruit is that we think it's year-round, but actually it requires three seasons to get the fourth season of fruit. It requires dormancy. Yeah. And, and so he was then saying, therefore, if your life is not always fruitful, it does not automatically mean that you're missing God. It might be that you're in a pruning season, a, a dormant yes. season. And I found that to be really helpful because I do think, Jay, in our rapidly efficient culture, Christians do carry a high level of shame that mm. we're not as far along as we thought we should be by now. What's your take yeah. on that? I agree totally. Um, Parker Palmer, in his book, A Hidden Wholeness, he has a whole section where he talks about seasons you know, and we all want to get to spring where we can see, you know, the color come back to the trees and then summer where we bask in the warmth of, you know, God's goodness in our lives and we can feel it on our skin. But he also talks about fall where things get um, dormant and the, the leaves begin to fall off the trees. And then he talks about winter that feels like death. And he talks about how it's cyclical, just like you're saying. It's just this constant ebb and flow throughout life. And um, what I have found in my own life, Steve, much of it, you know, credit to people like you who've helped me put language to some of the stuff that I've felt and naming some of these things that really are lies, you know, that tell me, well, you're failing, you know, how come you're not the spiritual giant that he is or she is? How come you've been a follower of Jesus for 20 something years and yet here you are, you're still struggling with X, Y, and Z. How dare you presume to be a pastor of people? You know, all of those sorts of lies that, that get whispered um, almost constantly. What I have found to be so helpful is that sort of visual of seasons. 
you know, and that um, it, it's so interesting living here in California. We don't really have seasons. Right. And so <laughs> when I go out to places like Colorado or I'm going to Chicago in February where there will be snow and Gonna Those take people my- don't like you. If they're inviting you in February, <laughs> they don't have any respect for you at all. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, I should call them and say, yeah. what's up with that? Um, but yeah, you know, it's interesting when I go to other parts of the country and I see seasons, there's something in me that says, oh man, you know, it's easy for me to say because I live in the warmth of California all year around, but there is a part of me that's like, you know, I kind of wish we had seasons, you know? And um so I say I share that to say there is a beauty in the rhythm of life. We just need to begin to see it, I think, uh, for what it is, that none of the seasons stay forever. That means winter won't be here forever, which is quite hopeful, but also means summer will not be here forever either, which on one hand maybe sounds sort of depressing, but on the other hand, it actually is um, it's quite life-giving. You know, the, the, the darkness of winter uh, juxtaposed against the brightness of summer, in many ways, it just is a reminder, man, you are alive and life is a gift and this is how life works. And Jesus himself lived through seasons. You know, he had the highest of highs of entering the city with the, the jubilation and applause of the people. And then shortly after that, he had the lowest of lows, the winter of Gethsemane, where he's like, take this cup from me and, and then resurrection, you know? So um, I think that reminder has been really helpful for me to know that God is in it with me through every season. And uh, that's the, that's the only steadiness I need. Mm. We're going to move on to talk about leadership transition because that's something that you're still in many ways still in. But before we do, Jay, just a reminder to my listeners, Jay's two books on this topic, Analog Church and Analog Christian, just a quick word. Analog Church, I I think every pastor I'm talking to is trying to find, figure out post-COVID church expression. It's complicated. Uh, So much has changed. We're, We're all trying to figure it out. It feels to me like we're all in a bit of a hangover, trying to get clarity on something that's foggy. But Jay's done a lot of the thinking for us, you know, as we figure out online, in person, all of that kind of stuff. Is it okay that people are watching a sermon online versus participating in the liturgy and life of the church? That's really Analog Church, really written for church leaders and church people who are hungry to find what's true and real. But then Analog Christian, you know, Jay gets into topics like contentment, um, how do you cultivate wisdom, for example, in a rapid-fire culture? Jay himself is a dad, and every parent I know is asking these questions as well. How do we help our kids navigate their technology? So just wanted to let you guys know that there'll be links in the show notes uh, for you to explore Jay's books. But Jay, talk to us about uh, you are not a veteran lead pastor. How long have you been in the lead chair? <laughs> yeah, it's been a whole nine months now. So Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so let's start with this. I've had also the privilege of not just spending time with you, but also your predecessor, Steve, a uh, fantastic guy. So here we have healthy church leadership handing over to healthy church leadership. It's very hard to do, even when things are healthy. I think it's very difficult. But um, what were one or two real surprises for you as you went from any kind of associate role into the lead chair what surprises inside you uh, showed up that maybe you weren't counting on? Yeah, two two key things come to mind. The first, and and people told me about both of them beforehand, so they weren't surprises in that I didn't expect them. They were surprises in how significant they felt. Um, so two things: one, uh, just the buzzing weight of responsibility that is very difficult to turn off. That, that was and has been and continues to be surprising. Not as surprising now, nine months in, because I've sort of adjusted to the weight. And I think slowly I'm learning how to take that backpack off when I need mm. to um, through really practical ways, actually, in way, just more practical than I expected. Yeah, um, let's have one while you're on it. What would be one or two practical things you do to help get relief? Hiking. It sounds so simple, but um, I I was just down in Joshua Tree with my wife and kids this weekend, 
and we just hiked Joshua Tree. And if 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 you've never been to Joshua Tree, it's essentially a desert, um, but beautiful. And uh, one of the things I love about hiking, especially in big, wide open spaces and in the mountains or whatever it might be, is that I feel small there. Um, I feel simultaneously small, but so seen and significant because I'm not working, I'm not creating anything, I'm just breathing and I'm enjoying the gift of either friends I'm hiking with or my family. We take our kids on short hikes every almost every Saturday um, and uh, I feel very human and I feel very much with God. And it feels like in those moments, that backpack of leadership, I'm able to take it off. And because I feel small in these environments, um, it I and maybe this is just my personality, I often think, when I hike, especially when I was at Joshua Tree, I just thought, you know, this desert and these rocks have been here who knows how many years. And if I'm lucky, I'll be here on this side of eternity, maybe another 40 years, you know? I mean, and yet God has been faithful. He was faithful long before this desert mm-hmm. existed, and he will continue to be faithful long after um, this desert is gone. Certainly my life has ended. And there's such a comfort in knowing that, you know, in my own smallness, the problems get small with me. And so, um, so that's one thing, but that was surprising. Just this constant sense of, oh man, you know, I have, uh, there is a gift of leadership here. I have to steward and the weight of that has been, has been surprising. And I think some of that is just self-work I need to continue to do. I think there's some unhealthy, uh, attachments of responsibility, sort of misguided sense of responsibility that somehow I am responsible for the success of whatever, you know, and I think I still need to work through some of that stuff. The other thing that's been surprising is um, I have an interesting story here. I I was on staff here for several years um, and then I left and then I came back to take the lead role to begin a succession plan. And um, I underestimated how much the dynamics of my relationship with friends who were once peers would change when the org chart changed. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's not like the relationships are bad. I just mean the dynamics have changed. And I think I'm still, you know, nine months is still very early. I'm still early on in navigating and figuring out um how to do that well, to hold the relationship for what it is on a, on a human level, on a covenantal level, and at the same time, be able to name and recognize and operate in a healthy way, understanding that organizationally, we have a different type of relationship. So um, those two things have been surprising. Yeah. Uh, two questions. First one's a whimsical question, then a serious question. The whimsical question, when you go to Joshua Tree, is it mandated to play U2? Is it optional? <laughs> What's your thought there? Well, for me, uh, I have to listen to U2 if I'm okay. going to Joshua Tree, yeah. which means my kids have to as well, but they don't yeah. mind it. They actually That's good quite parenting. enjoy U2. That's good yeah, parenting. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right, then the serious <laughs> question, um, my experience with most lead pastors, um, we have more power than we feel we have in the eyes of other people. You just referenced the relationship shifting. And some of that seems to be that you still feel like Jay, but they see you as blank, whatever that is. What's that been like for you? Yeah, strange. You know, I, I think that I, I you know, I, I, I've been aware of um, really helpful tools in terms of self self-work and and for several years. So I thought I had done a lot of that work. I, I think I I was not ready for how how much differentiation work would be necessary when my role changed. Um, I just did not, yeah, I just underestimated uh, how the organizational change and the environmental change and the relational shifts would affect me on a personal level. So, um, you know, most days I still feel like me for sure. And, and one of the great gifts in this season is that, and, and I know it's a gift because so many other lead pastor friends I talk to feel quite alone and isolated. I will say, I think one of God's great graces in this whole 
transition for us is that I don't feel alone. You know, when you were here with us, we went to dinner with a couple of guys on our directional team. And I think I told you at that dinner, um, man, I trust these guys and I feel so uh, in partnership with them, as well as several others, as well as my my predecessor, uh, who is also my pastor and my mentor. He's such a sounding board. So I don't I don't feel alone, and I think that's the way God has helped me navigate uh, this season. But yeah, in terms of the the power differentials, it's interesting. You know, we've gotten to know each other a little bit, so so you probably recognize this about me. I, I'm not the classic sort of traditional caricature of the strong type a driver my way or the highway type of leader that's just not my personality and i'm i'm trying really hard to just honor that god's made me this way i don't need to be that person i don't need to you know and so so far i think what i've learned is being relentlessly and ruthlessly myself has been the the saving grace in all of these relational dynamics that we're working out. I really appreciate you. I think that's such a such a helpful word for people because it, it just as I hear you say it, it brings relief. But, mm. but it is hard to believe, I think, Jay, that that on the one hand you step into a role you don't feel qualified or ready for, and I'm not just talking lead pastors. I think many of us have this experience. We feel over our heads. On the one on the one hand, there's a lot of growth. On the other hand. God knew what God was getting into when he put you in this position. And so just to just to try to be more yourself rather than a whole different person is the path forward. But it does feel counterintuitive, and I'm not <laughs> sure why. Yeah. I think there's blueprints. You know, there's a whole industry. And I'm not necessarily critiquing the industry, but there is an entire industry that I think is probably at least – 25, 30 years old, where the church and the business world sort of got in cahoots together and this whole industry of church leadership emerged. And I'm not critiquing it because I've actually quite benefited from it. It's been yeah. immensely helpful. One of the things that has I don't I don't think has been as helpful is in, within that industry, we have, I think, my opinion, we have created um, a particular image of what a strong Christian leader looks like, what they sound like, how they act, how they lead. And there are some people who got it has wired to be that way. And for that person, they should lead that way yeah. in, in a healthy way. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think it has ostracized, unintentionally ostracized tons of gifted leaders who just don't embody that. You know, they have a different way of leading. It makes me think of like uh, uh, Henry Nowen's book, In the Name of Jesus, which I picked up years ago because it said it was a leadership book. And then I read the book, and I remember the first time I read it, it's a thin little book. I remember thinking, this is a great book, but it was a lie. This is not a leadership book. And then I read it again a second time, and what I realized was, oh, it's not a leadership book in the Christian leadership industry complex. But this really is a leadership book, and it's a leadership book for people like me, you know, is, is what I felt. So I think that's some of what's going on. I don't know that for sure, but that's kind of my sense. And um, again, you know, your work has been so helpful, I think, for leaders like me to be able to name things and to say, oh, like, I don't have to be someone else to say yes to God's calling, you know, on, on my life and to be faithful to that. Yeah, a dear friend of mine named Jeff Surratt, uh, probably a lot of our yeah. listeners know Jeff. He yeah. lives just down the road. He's a huge force of encouragement in my life, Jeff and his wife, Sherry. In fact, while I'm doing shout outs, they are the reason I got published. They really opened a door for me. But he's playing with starting a serious thing called the Good Enough Pastors Club. And it is kind of getting to what you're talking about um, because there's not enough of those classic stereotypical humans to to fill our churches and so then the rest of us are mis misfits but we're actually the majority the misfits in this case are the majority population which to your point does not dismiss that type of leader it's just yeah making room for every tribe and tongue and nation right to be able to open the word and share it with people and shepherd it's it's a real challenge H how's your pressure on preaching jay how are you doing that was another challenge I faced when I stepped into the lead role. 
in my case, this may not be the same with you. I was the primary teacher. That's all we could afford. We're a church of 140. We could afford one one person. And uh, so I was doing 45, 48 weeks a year in those early days. And I was so terrified. I just run out of things to say. <laughs> um, how are you doing nine months in with your preaching load? Yeah, we uh, we there's a great privilege um, that I, I a benefit I enjoy here. We have a, a a fairly decent bench of teachers. It's not really a bench; it's a rotation. So, I teach about thirty times a year, and that's um, th- that's just the perfect sweet spot for me. You know, twenty-seven to thirty times a year. I just I need more time to prep. It's sort of the way I'm wired. I, I can't go every week. Um, I can go several weeks, you know, back to back to back, but I need a couple weeks beforehand. So, um, but we've got some great teachers here. We're a multi-congregational church, but we have live preaching at all of our congregations. So we're, we intentionally try not to build around one voice, but a plurality of voices. Um, so I benefit from that as far as the, you know, I, I love, I love that the good enough pastor club. I just love that title. Um, I struggle with that in so many ways, particularly in leadership ways, maybe because I'm new to it, but maybe because I've been preaching regularly for, gosh, you know, 20 years or something in some form or fashion, um, I feel fairly comfortable. I still struggle with like, oh gosh, that sermon was a dud. But for the most part, I I feel fairly comfortable at this point. Um, You know, our mutual friend, John Ortberg, tells the story about Dallas Willard uh, preaching at his church years ago. And uh, John says that the the sermon was not good. I mean, it was just yeah. blatantly not a good sermon. And he tells the story about how he, John and Dallas are walk, walking in the parking lot to, to go to lunch afterwards. And Dallas is smiling and he's humming this old hymn. And John looks over at Dallas and they were good friends. And he says, Dallas, how are you so happy and and chippy, like that sermon was bad. You know, how are you so upbeat? And Dallas said something to him. He said, John, if I've been faithful to do the work and prepared and um, did the hard work and gave it my best shot, then the moment I speak the words in a sermon, it's like a helium balloon. The words are spoken and I just let the balloon go and the Holy Spirit will use it to do whatever he wants to do. It's not mine to own anymore. I remember John telling that story many years ago, and it's always stuck with me. So I almost literally, every time I preach or speak anywhere, uh, I try to visually imagine, Lord, this is yours. I did the work. I was faithful. I tried to be faithful. And now I just, I release it. It's not mine. It's yours. And it's going to do what your spirit wants to do in people's lives. And if that's a life-changing thing, I know that wasn't me. And if it's just something small, that wasn't me either, you know? Mm. And so that's been really helpful for me. That's so good. I, I first heard that story before I was a lead pastor. Mm. I remember being blown away by the idea. I, I believe Will had actually even said, or maybe John turned it into a teaching and said that he trusts God with the outcome. He, yes. he does the preparation and then God, God's role is the outcome. Yes. But it wasn't until years into being a lead pastor that I practiced it. I know I've, I've shared at your uh, gathering when I intentionally preached a bad sermon on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, that that experience was largely inspired by that story. When I heard oh, that wow. story, I thought, I'm not living that way. Like, I, that sounds like good news. What I, I what I heard in that story was, oh, there's gospel there. There's good news I wanted. I, there's freedom there. And yeah. so that was what actually led me to preach a terrible sermon on purpose is to break <laughs> break the pressure of outcomes and I do the else? same there's it's just not on purpose so it's not as cool. <laughs> well know? I've done I've done more than my share of those. How many times have my congregation said, "Well, he's re- he's really trying." You know, bless him. he's he's a nice guy. You know what? He's a nice guy. Let's try next week. Yeah, the grace of God. Uh, you know, Jay, we could we could kick around a lot of things. I do want to take the opportunity to learn from you. I'm a majority culture white guy because I wasn't sure that you knew that, so I just thought I'd point it out because um, that's what we do. We explain we explain obvious things, right? Um, you come from an Asian culture. Yeah. What is something from an Asian background, uh, a non-majority culture, that you would like someone like me to know that I may or may not know? Yeah. For me, coming from a Korean American background, I actually was born in Korea uh, and moved here to um, California when I was four. Um, 
so I, I remember uh, because my mother was a single mom and she worked two, three jobs at a time. I stayed at home with her sister, my aunt, and my aunt only spoke Korean. She didn't speak English. So for the first year and a half or so, I was just home speaking Korean. So when I went to first grade, I spoke no English. So, uh, you know, for through first grade and a part of second grade, I was in ESL, English as a second language classes and totally sort of marginalized, no friends. Um, and, you know, what I've discovered through counseling and therapy over the years is if I am not careful, much of my work can be driven by a continued desire to prove my doubters wrong. Um, you know, in my, in my most unhealthy moments, I can get up on a stage and talk for 40 minutes and have people's attention. And deep down inside, what I'm not doing is trying to help them. And instead what I'm doing is remember all those kids who made fun of me because I didn't speak English. Look at me now. People pay me to speak English, you know, that sort of thing. And by God's grace, you know, a lot of that stuff has been worked out, but, but some of those things are still there. I share that to say, even, um, for minority culture, uh, men and women, even if they weren't immigrants necessarily, I think that sense of needing to prove ourselves is deeply embedded in just the reality of being a minority culture individual. And when minority culture individuals step into any form of leadership in majority culture contexts, um, recognizing that for first for the individual, recognizing that I think is really important. And then in the, within the majority culture context, you know, I think it can become really difficult when that sort of differentiation that you are a minority culture leader in a majority culture context is emphasized with uh, usually it's it's done unwittingly and unintentionally, but when it's emphasized in a sort of patronizing way, like "Wow, look at you," you know, "Here you are," sort of thing, um, it's not it's not intentionally harmful. But what it can do is it can continue to uh, breed it can, it can continue to put fuel um, to the fire of that sort of unhealth that I need to somehow prove myself here. And um, what I have found to be so compelling and beautiful about this community that I'm a part of, when I first came on staff, I remember that happening a bit, you know, um, people saying, oh, it's so good that, and, and some of it was actually positive and I'm not, I'm not, it's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I remember people saying like, oh, you're a young Asian leader doing this in a white church and like, look at you kind of thing. Um, but in a, in a weird way, what I've realized is, you know, I love Paul's words in Ephesians, I think Ephesians 4, um, where he talks about, hey, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. You are citizens of God's kingdom. And then he says, he doesn't leave it at that. He says, and, and, and you are a household. You're members of his household, which in the ancient Greco-Roman world, household is shorthand for extended family, essentially. So you go from like strangers to citizens to family and that journey for a minority culture individual and a mi minority culture leader in a majority context is, is a very tenuous and sensitive journey. And it is a journey. You know, if, if the majority culture rushes to sort of um, say, oh, you're family now. If you rush that process, what it can do is it can just colonize the minority culture individual. Because what we mean in a majority culture context is your family, meaning, yeah, I know you're Asian, but you seem really white or something, you know, so you're, you belong kind of thing. Rather than going on that long journey and naming, hey, we, we, there are, there's an eclectic sort of array of stories and backgrounds here. And in some ways that feels foreign to one another or strange, but let's take that journey. Let's become citizens together of God's kingdom, get to know one another, honor each other's stories. And from there we can truly become family, you know, one household where we hold one another's stories, appreciate one another's stories and learn from one another's stories and backgrounds. And again, by God's grace, I'm, I'm watching that happen in our church and it's a really beautiful, beautiful thing. I, you know, I, we have a long ways to go, but, 
um, yeah, so there you go. That's one thought. Phenomenal. I, I'm so glad I asked. That was such a, to me, just a profound insight into, I love the way you laid out the process as well, foreigner to citizen to family and shortcutting the, the well-meaning damage. That's an incredible thing you just shared with us, Jay. I, I know in our own journey at our church, we have always had women elders, which I know in some circles is controversial and um, not so much interested in battling the theology of it, but because we have women elders, I was chagrined to discover that for too many years it was tokenism. It was one woman. Um, and so we still put a woman in a minority situation and things really shifted when we made it 50-50. Yeah. Um, and then we made it, okay, women are going to be our chair, chair and vice chair, yeah. um, which for the last three years now we've had a woman chair, woman vice chair. And it's... Um, by the way, when you're transitioning out of a church, oh boy, that's the best group of elders. You just get so cared for through yeah. that process. It was amazing. Mm. But um, but watching somebody no longer be the only one of their kind in a room, that, yeah. was, that was the lesson I was embarrassed because I've always, I think, probably pridefully thought I was fairly far along in this journey. Um, I had a profound experience with a black uh, seminary professor in theology. He <laughs> took a look around our class one day and, and he's like, well, I tell you what you don't need is another book written by a white guy. Like, mm. And so we spent our whole year in non-white theology. It was mm. That was in the 90s. And he wow. introduced us to privilege. I'd never heard of it, of course. Um, but even so, my recent lesson of, oh, wow, uh, anytime there's one, anytime the minority is still the minority in the room, all of those dynamics are at play. Yeah. Let, let me just pick your brain, Jay, on um, um, deference. That seems to be another challenge, particularly uh, in Asian culture. Would you say that's yeah. true? Yeah. Talk to us about deference, what it is, and the problem with it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, in Korean, in particular, uh there are there's there's something called i am i'm so bad at korean but there's something called chondenmal which is a different way of speaking to an elder so <clears throat> it's actually it would be just ridiculous for me to go to even a stranger who's a korean man or woman and if if i spoke to them in a particular sort of parlance that wasn't chundemai, it would be so utterly rude and unacceptable culturally. So even inherently in the language, there's a sort of built-in deference uh, based on a variety of things, age and a number of other things as well. And I think in Eastern cultures in general, so so my wife is um, Chinese-American. Um, yeah, in Eastern cultures in general, yeah, there is a sense of honoring the elder, you know, and not necessarily intentionally shaming the younger, but sort of putting them in their place and making sure they earn their stripes simply by number of years and all those sorts of things. So it's been quite interesting for me on a personal level. My predecessor is 24 years older than me. Uh, he, and he also is, you know, has been a mentor. I consider him my pastor. Um, that dynamic for the last nine, 10 months, especially has been really beautiful, but really strange, very unique. And I realize a lot of it is built into it's just inherently built into, I think like my DNA, you know, my body and bones because of my culture and the way I grew up. Um, and I, I do think that there is a sort of beauty in that, uh, all of the the sort of books I read about leadership transition and succession in churches, all of the advice and wise counsel we received from people, one of the things they told us was the incoming lead pastor has to honor the outgoing lead pastor and their spouse. And I remember people in meetings telling me that with such seriousness in their eyes, like, Jay, you've got to get this. I don't think you understand. And I remember thinking back like, no, I mean, we can stop talking about it. That yeah. was my plan. It's not hard for me to do. One, it's easy for me to do because I genuinely love and admire my predecessor. But even if I didn't, it wouldn't <laughs> yeah. be hard for me to do. Yeah. We're like, we don't, I get it. You know, our, 
but I think it's because there wasn't an understanding that in my culture, that's just so inherent. Now, that's a good thing in a transition season like this. Where it can get bad is, um, and I wrestle with this sometimes, I will still you know, often make a decision or say something in all staff meetings. And I have actually, this is confession time, I've actually found myself going to my predecessor and asking the question, hey, was that okay? Was that... And there's a healthy way to do that if it really is just sounding board, like, hey, any thoughts on maybe ways to improve? Just, you know, your opinion would be helpful to me. But I found myself also sort of deferring in ways that maybe I need to continue working through in order to just fully be myself, like we talked about earlier, and know that I don't need his approval or anyone else's approval to affirm that God has called me. Um, to do what he's called me to do. Uh, and I think there is a difference, you know, I think wise counsel is always prudent. It's, it's always wise. And um, being open to uh, sage advice is always a good thing, but it can get unhealthy if I defer too much and it becomes a sort of approval mechanism. I've got all sorts of other issues as well. I mean, I grew up without a father and so sometimes I can see my predecessor as a, as a father figure in my life, and that can get very strange, and I need to work through some of that stuff as well. But um, yeah, I appreciate that you asked that question. I wish I had something better to say. I think it's something I'm still sort of working through. And Yeah, being aware of it. Folks, you know, so many of you listen, you reach out, you you let me know what you think of the podcast. It's really uh, gratifying. I, I I mean, I'm the one that benefits most, obviously, from this podcast. That's that's always true. But if you want to take a step further, um, the the three tools we offer, kind of in a Goldilocks form of budget. Uh, obviously, the podcast is free. the The next thing is our 12 week journal that we just released in August. It's the Calm, Aware, Present Journal. It's a 12-week journey to help you go from being reactive to connected, aware, and present. Uh, the next step down beyond that is really our best thing that we offer and our most affordable, which is our online membership community. It's uh, $36 a month, and we've got 15 modules on that right now. We do monthly Zooms. You can post a case or a question. You can go on your own learning journey. There's also self-assessments with that. And the beauty of the self-assessments is they actually email themselves to you once you've filled them out. So you get a record. Right now, we've got a number of teams that sign up together. When teams sign up together, they do get a break on the price. But the biggest benefit is you get to go on a learning journey together. You get to bring your self-assessments to your meetings and have open conversations. So, you know, step one is you can grab a journal. Step two is you could grab this membership and sign up today. Step three is you can bring me to come out and see you. I can either do a Zoom or an in-person Right now, I'm generally booked through the end of February next year. So we're starting to take bookings in March. But um, if you want me to come out and spend a day, or if you want to do a Zoom, all of that you can get at capablelife.me. So we'll put that link in the show notes. Uh, look, I, I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying that if you just keep listening and don't take any other action, nothing's really going to change. We can't listen our way to change. We can't read our way to change. We have to embody it. We have to learn to talk about it. We have to be in a peer group. Really a lot of what Jay's been telling us, the slow, slow journey. So capablelife.me. And uh, Jay, on that note, I know you have feared the gauntlet and yet here it is. <laughs> um, I've got, I've taken us a little long, so I'll just do two questions today. Just a brief gauntlet, fortunate for you. Um, <laughs> question number one, what is a, what would be one of your top sources of leadership anxiety right now? Oh my goodness. <clears throat> Yeah, the, 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 I think far and away, the top source of leadership anxiety for me right now, it sounds so simplistic, but it's just true and real about me is that I have a lamp and not a flashlight and I will be, I will never be given a flashlight, meaning I don't see myself as a visionary prophetic leader. I don't see myself as one, you know, I read people and listen to them on podcasts. I, you know, read a book by Mark Sayers and that sort of 
um, imposter syndrome, you know, begins to seep in. I'm like, well, I'm not, I can't see the future the way Mark can, even though inherently like intellectually, I know, well, he doesn't really see the future either. He's just a smart guy reading the tea leaves and doing his best. But I, I start believing those lies. And I think that's the thing that causes me the most anxiety is, uh, I sense a, a calling to steward and shepherd a congregation and a staff uh, that is looking to me, I think, in some ways to lead us. And I just, I'm holding this little lamp and I can see two steps in front of me. So getting comfortable with leading that way um, has been difficult. And it, yeah, it causes me a lot of anxiety that I need to work through. All right. Final simple question. You know, and, um, John says, perfect love casts out fear. So when in your life recently have you felt most fully and completely loved? Well, we talked about it already. It's a, it's a snapshot into the moments I feel most loved. But this past weekend, chasing my son as he's jumping rocks at Joshua Tree, fearing for his life because he doesn't know that on the other side of that rock is imminent death. I just felt so, so deeply the love of God as I considered the gift of my wife and these two little lives that we've been given. I, I felt so loved by my wife uh, and, and by my children. Um, and again, it's, I've said this already, but it's in the smallness that I feel so loved. It's just in recognizing how small I am and the tiny little speck, the small little blip that is my life in the long overarching history of, of God's story, God's unfolding story, and yet to know that God sees me, you know, right there in that moment that he is delighting right alongside me, that the warmth of that Joshua Tree son is like the warmth of God's love over me and my family. I just felt so loved in that moment. I can feel it now, even just talking about it. It's hard not to get emotional. And um, I think I felt so loved because I felt so free, you know, and free from the burden and the stress of um, the lie of responsibility. You know, what you said earlier, I've, I've read that Dallas Willard quote as well, you know, that um, the outcomes are, are not up to me. They're God's, you know. All I've got to do is be faithful. And uh, I, I, so I feel so loved in those moments, in those moments when I feel really small but seen. Jay Kim, thank you so much for joining me. I've been looking forward to hosting you on the show, and you've given us so much to chew on here. So thanks for indulging as I took us on all these different paths. I, I really appreciate you joining me. Oh, thank you so much, Steve. Really appreciate you and uh, so much love for you. <laughs> <laughs> 